All right, hey church, Song of Solomon chapter 3 is where we're going to be, so go ahead and be turning that in your Bible or your device or whatever it is. Uh, We'll be there in a second, and uh, next week, just again, a fair warning, we're going to be in Song of Solomon chapter 4. Song of Solomon chapter 4 is a great time if you have really small kids for them to check out the amazing kids ministry, because uh, here in the message is going to be kind of PG-13, all right? If you don't know what that means, just read chapter 4 this week and you'll know exactly what uh, we're talking about, all right? So. So that's next week. This week, I want to say hello to the online folks. We got some folks joining us from New York. We got Diane and Kevin from New York. We've got Debbie and Howard from South Carolina, and we've got Steve and Teresa from Argo, Alabama, Roll Tide or War Eagle, whichever one you are. All right. So here's where we are. If um, um, if you think about those of you that are married, you did some. Uh, what they called vows, all right? You stood in front of either a JP or a church or inside or outside, and you did some vows. And maybe a lot of you probably got married in Western North Carolina. And WNC is an amazing, not today, today would be a terrible day for a wedding, but normally when it's not 14 degrees, it is an amazing place for weddings. I think the average wedding in Western North Carolina, the average one is like $35,000 for a wedding here, all right? So people are coming from all over the place, they want, to get, they want to get married in Western North Carolina. Just the views. Um, and I don't do as many as I used to, but, I, but it, weddings are pretty fun, really. I mean, I've done some fancy weddings. Done some weddings, you know, whether it be at the Biltmore, some that had like carriages, horse-drawn carriages come up. Um, had some with peacocks that have actually like walked down the center aisle. Terrible idea, by the way. All right, terrible idea for peacocks. But all that fancy, fancy, had uh, I've had real casual ones. I've had groomsmen who fainted during the wedding as well. All sorts of wedding stories you have right there. And then, obviously, for uh, you know, this picture right here is from 1989, August 19th, uh, when Lori. This is when Lori and I were pretty fired up because it's actually after the vows uh, at the reception, and it took a it took a pretty good while to get to the point of the wedding because she was in nursing school and I was in uh, seminary. And if uh, the Greek word for seminary is broke, all right, because I had broke as a joke, had, had no money. So I didn't have any money for a ring, and I was trying to figure out how to do I was praying, how do I propose this girl? And the Lord provided in an unusual way. He actually got my Buick Regal uh, stolen from out in front of my apartment because I lived, I, li- I lived in the hood in Fort Worth, and it got stolen right in front of my eyes. It got uh, recovered like four days later. And it was stripped, all right? Radio gone, hubcaps gone, everything of value gone, insurance paid up. I don't know what they paid me, like two grand or something like that to replace the car. And so instead of replacing all the stuff that got stolen out of the car, I bought an engagement ring, all right? You call that uh, shady, I call that providence, all right? That's God's providence, the way to provide. I started the car with a screwdriver because that handle was gone. I started the screwdriver for like a year. It was great. Um, So with that being said, the vows we said, you know, 32 years ago. And when you think about vows, if you've been to a wedding at all, they, they typically kind of go uh, the same way. You, you exchange these vows and do you take this woman to be your lawful widow wife to have and to hold from this day forward for better or worse, rich or poor, sickness and hell till death do you part. Boom, I do. You know, and then they, they say the same thing. And then there's, then you got to do the, the promise, the vow. One's horizontal, you're kind of saying it to everybody in there, and then, and then uh, the other one's vertical. But what, what, what's underneath all of that? What, when you, when, when you got to throw the decorations away and when you take the tuxedos back, uh, what's the underneath? What's underneath that? 
What's this? What's the picture? Now, in Ephesians chapter 5, which is the most concentrated teaching in the Bible on marriage, it actually says that marriage is a picture of the gospel, and the gospel is a picture of marriage. Ephesians chapter 5, all this stuff, husbands do this, wives do this, and at the end it says, actually, this is about Christ and his church. In other words, this is, marriage is supposed to picture what the gospel is, and the gospel is supposed to teach us about marriage as well. I mean, everybody wants to be known and loved, and... Uh, you know, if you're just known but not loved, all right, that's super shallow. If you're loved and not known, that's super shallow as well. But if you're known and loved, which is the gospel, uh, you know, that, that's what marriage is supposed to picture, that sort of other kind of, supposed to give us a glimpse of a holy God loving sinful people. That's why we say around here all the time, we're like, you know what, God's not in love with some future version of you. When you get your act together, he loves the messy, broken you right here, all right? He, he loves us and then will change us. And I say that to say, I understand in uh, watching online or at the campuses or at Arden, there's a lot of different people on that continuum, both spiritually and maritally. And so uh, maritally-wise, you just got to realize that this is not like a marriage pep talk. This series is not like four ways, to, four ways to make your marriage better. I think it's extremely practical, but if it's not grounded and saturated in the gospel, then it's just a kind of a behavior modification deal, and that's not what we're about. All right, the gospel, the gospel illustrates marriage, and marriage illustrates the gospel back to us. And so one of the things we're looking at in this whole thing of the Song of Solomon is, is uh, we're in a place of called the wedding now. Uh, if you hadn't been with us, Song of Solomon is in a section of the Bible right there in the middle that is typically referred to as wisdom literature. There's five books in there. You got like Job and Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Those are like wisdom about certain things, wisdom about trials, wisdom about God, wisdom about just stuff in life, Proverbs, wisdom about, hey, how do I not get sucked into the cul-de-sac of normality going around and around? That's Ecclesiastes. But then you get to the Song of Solomon, and it's probably the most unusual book of wisdom, and it's this. It's a story. It's a story about a man and a woman in love. I mean, how great is God to give us a whole book in the Bible, as we talked about in the series. It's a book in the Bible about marriage and dating and sex and redemption and redemption. Redemption is bought, being bought back. It means, you know, things can be new. And you might have walked in here, and you had a fight on the way to church. Maybe you were, I mean, there's, by the way, there is no fight like a fight on the way to church, Correct. Man, that's just like next level. And then you get in here, hey, brother, how you doing? Hey, all, praise God. And it's just, it's not good. It's not good. And you might be thinking, some of you are like, I'm not even sure we can make it to like, we can't make it through this year. The last 22 months has been hell on earth. And it's just where one last time. And, and God's got great news. The first miracle God ever did in the New Testament that Jesus ever did was that, believe it or not, at a wedding. At a wedding. The Bible starts with a wedding. The Bible ends with a wedding. First miracle was at a wedding. And our prayer is that God would do a miracle in, in your marriage as well. And so Song of Solomon, chapter 3, is where we're going to be. And uh, again, it's, uh, it's, again, it's a book about a man and a woman and the progression that they have to show how God has designed relationships to thrive and flourish. And we've seen that progression, which, by the way, if I don't say it, if you hadn't been here the first couple of weeks, uh, I've never really been politically correct. I'm even less politically correct now, but we're really, really intent on being biblically correct, all right? And so what I mean by that is when you talk about, I'm not going to be stereotypes. I'm not going to use cheap little stereotypes about men and women, uh, but the Bible does picture, okay, two equal image bearers, man and woman, distinctly designed by Almighty God, totally equal, but not exactly the same either different strengths, different weaknesses, different tendencies, and especially once you get past Genesis 2 and you get into Genesis 3, when the fall happens, 
When rebellion happens and the fact that sin colors every single thing that we do, we should not be surprised then that there are certain tendencies that husbands have that we have to avoid and certain tendencies that wives have that the Bible tells us to avoid as well. So again, with that being said, here's the way the book goes. The book is basically about six or seven parts. It starts off week one. Uh, These two people are attracted to each other. They begin to spend time with each other. They look at each other's character. All right, physical is fine, but you know, bottom line, when you're 80, it's not the physical, it's, it's the character, and that's how it starts off. And then last week was actually on how do they do what we call dating. Dating's only like 150 years old, but what you talk about is how do you learn the other person, and you're supposed to still date your spouse if you're married. If you're not married, how do you date in a way that honors God and is for your joy? And then today is the vows they take. It's the wedding. That's where we are. Next week, again, is the honeymoon. Honeymoon. It's the honeymoon next week, so be prepared, all right? And some of you are going to go, oh, me. And some of you are going to go, Martha, I love this church. You know, then whatever it is, you're like, this is where we're going. And then uh, then there's conflict. And then basically, how do you then flourish in old age as you, what are those principles that are going to stand the test of time? All right, you ready? And so we're going, I'm going to read this text. We're going to go through some commentary. And there's just basically two principles that jump out at you. Keep in mind, this is poetry, that's the, that's the language form. It's not that much in the Bible, but this book is poetry, meaning it's, it's kind of, it's like a riff, all right? It's not, it's not like point, it's not like Romans where it's like point one, bing, A underneath that, bing, one underneath that. That's not it. It's just up and back, but there are principles that come out of it. So here it is. Chapter three, verse six says, what is that coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke? perfumed with myrrh and frankincense with all the fragrant powders of a merchant. Let me just stop there. I'll come back to it real quick. He's already starting to use, remember his audience, his audience, he's talking to some Jewish people and the whole Jewish history, if you're new to Bible study, one of the most famous stories is the way that God led the children of Israel in the wilderness. And he did it with a fire by night and smoke or cloud during the day. And so they're reaching back into that story and say, just like God led the children of Israel, he also has led us to this wedding day. And again, it's not like that you're looking for that missing half. Look at last week's sermon. It's not that missing half. I'm, he's going to complete me. Jesus completes us. All right. But the idea is God has sovereignly brought them together. And you're like, well, I'm not sure God sovereignly brought me to the guy I'm married to. Listen, when you said I do, all right, that became God's providential will for you. We'll come back to that. Verse 7, behold, it is the litter of Solomon. Litter is not like puppies. All right, litter is a, it's a word for like carriage or sofa. It's like that kind of sofa they would carry like guys on each corner and you'd be like carried in through there. It's like super fancy. All right, this thing again, this was at, probably at the Biltmore State or something. This was like super fancy wedding. Around it are 60 mighty men, some of the mighty men of Israel. This is such a great imagery. Around it are 60 mighty men. These are the groomsmen. How many groomsmen do you have? All right, I had like five or six. This brother's got 60, and he took the initiative. There are people, it's like, I need you to be here at this time. I need you to dress this way. I need you to act this way, and check this out. All of them wearing swords and experts in war, each with his sword at his thigh against terror by night. I mean, these are like the Navy. This is obviously, it's an open carry wedding, and they're all, they're, they're like, these are like the Navy SEALs of that time. When he says the Israel's mighty men, these are the elite soldiers. They're like, we are protecting, we're protecting this marriage. We're protecting this wedding, making sure nothing and no harm comes to it. 
Verse nine, King Solomon made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon, basically super fancy, super expensive. He made its posts of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple. Strange interior designer, but nonetheless, it's fancy. Its interior was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. That's like the bridesmaids. Remember, just like he had 60, you can kind of, if you read through there, it's like she's got a corresponding 60 bridesmaids. I mean, up and down the aisle, up and down the aisle, they had all these people. And then the families involved too, verse 11, go out, O daughters of Zion. Zion's like a portion of Jerusalem, same group of girlfriends that she had. And look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him. So mom's involved. Mom's like, I like this. I like this girl. On the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. So weddings are happy. Marriage is supposed to be happy. The community's involved. Friends are involved. People are there. They're affirming. They've been a part of this process. And now they come to a great wedding. And it's going to be pretty awesome. But there's a couple of points in here we really need to, and the first one needs to sober us up a little bit, and it's simply this principle. It's protect your marriage. Protect your marriage. Verse 7 says that the guy had 60 mighty men as groomsmen. Men. Solomon took the initiative. He resisted passivity, and he said, I need some men that have my back that will do everything possible to protect this wedding, who will do everything possible to protect my marriage, who will watch out for me, who will encourage me, who will protect. And when you look at it on top of that, you got friends of hers, verse 10 and 11, they're approving, they're supporting. 120 people up and down the aisle say, we will fight for your marriage, we will fight for your marriage. The question you gotta ask is who's fighting for your marriage? Who is fighting for your marriage? Because I can assure you, loved one, somebody is fighting against your marriage. The Bible talks about how everything was awesome, first wedding in Genesis chapter two. Genesis chapter two is the prototype for all weddings. Sometimes people are like, well, that's Old Testament. Just tell me what Jesus said about weddings and about marriage. Jesus quotes Genesis chapter two when he starts talking about weddings. He said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two will become one flesh. He quotes that in Matthew 19 when they ask him about marriage. So understand, Genesis 2 is ground zero for a theology of marriage. The apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, with all of that stuff in there, he then grounds it in Genesis chapter 2 saying the same exact thing. And so what you need to realize is in Genesis 2, it says again, leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, they will become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So Genesis 2 ends awesome, amazing. Genesis 2 ends amazing. You got man and woman and they've got a commission and they're supposed to be fruitful and multiply and they're naked and they're not ashamed and they got great jobs and they love each other and there's no misunderstanding and there's no emotional baggage and there's none of that at all. And you're like, man, can we just like stop the Bible? It's, it's, it's like good for two chapters because chapter three happens. And in chapter three, and remember in the, old, in the manuscripts, there were not chapter divisions. Those were put there later for us to be able to find our way around our Bibles. But you go from what we know as Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, and there is no chapter division. There is no and. Let's go to a different subject. It goes from, and the man and the woman 
We're naked and not ashamed, period. And then the next sentence is, and then the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field. So you go from immediately having this wedding to you got somebody who's going to fight against that wedding. You go from here's a marriage and it's going awesome to here's somebody who's got his target on that wedding. And you look there and it's amazing, but then it's short-lived and she is tempted by the serpent. She is called to rule over creation with him as vice regents with, with him. And instead she gets ruled by creation and it wreaks havoc on the first couple in the first marriage and it wreaks havoc now. And by the way, real quickly, if you're uh, sometime right off the bat, if you're like, man, are you telling me you actually believe in like a, I mean, some guy with a pitchfork and a red cape and horns and trying to ruin my marriage? Actually, no, the Bible never describes it like that at all. All right. Because you're like, that's kind of naive to think that. And I would just push on a little bit and to say this, my friend, uh, if you actually think that all the issues with you and your spouse are just the fact that you're not a great communicator, I would say you're naive. If you think the fact that you can't bust that habit that has continually plagued you and plagued your family, I would say you're naive. If you think, you know what, the only reason that prodigal hadn't returned home is because she's got a bad peer group, I would say you're naive. And I would say somewhere in your theology, you need to have some room for some spiritual warfare. And that's what's happening here. And here's what happens in verse six, and then I'm gonna press in with the guys for a few minutes. Verse six of Genesis three says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, check out this, she took of its fruit and ate. That's usually where it ends. Most husbands don't even like the next verse. They don't even know it's there. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate too. Don't miss that. Who was with her? So while the serpent is tempting Eve to disbelieve and disobey God, Adam just stood there passively. Adam wasn't out doing what God told him to do. Adam wasn't close in protecting his family. Adam was right there when the whole thing happened and he just sat there passively. Men, listen to me for a second. Husbands, listen to me for a second. Throughout the Bible, it repeatedly illustrates that the root that is plaguing men is the sin of passivity. Being passive, not taking initiative. Now, when you look at that, I can give you countless examples. You see it here in Genesis 3. You see uh, Noah get, letting his guard down and getting drunk. You see Abraham. It's like, hey, is that your wife? No, she's my sister. Really? Really, Abraham? You see uh, Moses, instead of walking into God's call in his life, what does he do? He just makes excuses over and over and over again. And here's what it is. The fundamental battle for a man, the fundamental default mode in a man is passivity, especially as it pertains to sacrificial leadership of his family. Now, here's what I'm not talking about. Here's what the Bible does not teach. I'm not talking about faux masculinity. I'm not talking about some guys because sometimes guys are bowing up when you talk about a male being passive and a man being passive. They like bow up and they actually overcompensate because they actually are passive in the things that really matter. And you're like, how dare you say that? Or they get hyper aggressive. And man, anybody, any man that gets hyper aggressive with a woman, you need to be, that is shameful and great wickedness and you need to repent. If you've ever bowed up physically on your wife, you need to repent quickly and get some guys that will hold you accountable, all right? So I'm not talking about what they call toxic masculinity. There's toxic masculinity and there's biblical masculinity. Biblical masculinity understands I am to sacrificially lead my family. 
And what you see here is, uh, you know, and, and where the passivity hits for all of us, the default mode is we're not passive with our job. We're not passive with our hobbies. What we're passive with typically is laying down our life for our wife and our kids. That's where we're typically passive when you look at this passage, you see Solomon. I mean, Solomon, he rejects passivity in his marriage. Throughout this book, he pursues her heart. He engages her heart. And it's illustrated even here at the wedding where he goes out of his way to make sure she is cared for, make sure all this stuff is in order, make sure he's got some other people in their lives to make sure that their marriage is protected. And so he's the opposite of toxic masculinity, he's also the opposite of a passive male. He's a sacrificial leader saying, I'm going to protect what God has blessed me with. And bottom line is nothing, nothing, nothing grows that's healthy if it's not cultivated. I mean, some of you got like yard of the month or garden of the month or whatever, that's cool, that's awesome. But I would say, you know, not a single person in here has ever had the HOA come down to their neighborhood or come down to their yard and say, you get yard of the month or yard of the year and you had not done jack with it. Nothing, if you have a beautiful yard, it's not because you just said, ah, whatever, it's gonna happen. No, you did some stuff, you overseeded, you fertilized, you cared for that. In the same way, he said, they're going, you know what? I'm going to care for what God has given me. And here's what my, my, my question is, who's fighting for your marriage? What intentionality are you showing? I promise you, marriages at Biltmore Church that have gotten in the ditch, they would all say, I wish I had some people that had my back when we started to go in the ditch as a couple. I don't really honestly know how much easier, and our guys and ladies do a phenomenal job. I mean, how much easier can it be to get some people around you than being able to have a QR code sitting in your seat that all you gotta do is take a phone, open up the camera and go boom. And it gives you five choices to begin to have some people around you. And you look at this and you're like, uh, I'm too busy, I'm too busy, I'm too busy. Um, I would simply say, if you were to ask yourself the question, some of you are like, you're in a good spot. A lot of you are in a medium spot and some of you are in a downward trajectory and you need to ask the question, if things don't change in the next two years, where are we going to be? Where are we gonna be in two years if things don't change? Because your direction now, unless it changes, is where you're gonna be just further into the woods. I mean, some of you are hunters and if you like shoot an animal, you shoot a deer or a bear or something like that and you don't kill him, and they run into the woods, you're supposed to mark where they go into the woods. And then when you go try to look for them, as you get deeper and deeper into the woods, you're supposed to tie all these little things on the bushes, right? To know where you are. You either go buy them at Sportsman's Warehouse or you, you can even get toilet paper and you can like put them, you can put them on the trees. And so you get in there, you don't get lost and you're tracking the animal. You're looking for blood or sign or whatever. But then after a while, you feel like, I don't know where the animal went. I don't know where the animal went. We've lost him. They say the best way, the best way to figure out where the animal went is to look back and see where the animal has been. And if you look back and say, well, here's the way the animal has been going, so there's at least a decent chance that's the direction the animal is still heading, the loved one. Unless something changes, where you're going now in your marriage is where you're gonna be in two years. And some of you can't afford that. You just can't afford that. You can't afford to not make some adjustments and so husbands, if you're a husband and you're blessed to be a husband, I'm just saying, I want to set you up for a win. More than anything else, I want to set you up for a win to just say, hey, we can do this. I can do this. We can do this thing together. So first one is protect. Second one is this. And this one's, this one's like an encompassing, it encompasses all of, 
all of the Bible's teaching on what marriage is, and, you got, and this is a rejection of something. You have to reject what I'm just gonna call the consumer mindset. You gotta reject the consumer mindset. You've gotta understand God brought you together, even if you didn't see it, even if you didn't understand it. When you said, I do, it's like, you know what? God is pro-marriage. God wants that marriage to work. And in verse six, that's what they're saying. In verse six, they're like, you know what? Just like God led these people, God led us. Just like God showed them guidance, God showed us guidance. And then here we are at the wedding. And you gotta understand God's plan for weddings and God's plan for marriage is not a consumer mindset, it's a covenant mindset. A consumer mindset is basically, and there's nothing wrong with being a consumer with the grocery store, for example. There's nothing wrong with being that. I mean, we shop here, why? Because they have what we want. They have what we, we have the prices we want. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with a consumer mindset with your phone company, your cell company. It's like, you know what? If Verizon doesn't do it, I'll switch over to AT&T. If AT&T doesn't do it, I'll switch over to this one. Nothing wrong with the consumer mindset at all. But marriage is supposed to be a picture and an echo of the gospel, which is not a contract and not consumer. I mean, Jesus Christ himself, he did not say to sinners in need of salvation, you do your part, I'll do my part. We'll meet in the middle. It's a 50-50 deal. That's not what he said, all right? He made a covenant. That covenant said basically no matter what, no matter what, no matter what, I do. No matter what happens, I do. That's why the New Testament writers quote the Old Testament so often because they're showing, listen, God's keeping his covenant. We messed up and we were crazy and we were messy and broken and all that stuff. But look here, what God said back here, God fulfilled right here. That's a covenant. It's like a turbo, it's like a super turbo promise from Almighty God. So let me show you how this works. Genesis chapter two, that famous saying here at a lot of weddings, like man will leave his father and mother, and it says will hold fast or cleave to his wife. Literally what that word cleave means is to make a covenant. And so the essence of marriage is a covenant. Technically, it's a public vow of faithfulness. And without, without that, okay, you're not married. And you say, well, we're, you know, we're married in spirit, we're married in our heart. What? what? The Bible doesn't know anything about that. So no, you're married when you make those vows that express covenant. So here's what it is about covenant. Covenant is not about your feelings at the present time, but it's about your promise for the future. It's not about your feelings. When, you're, when you see somebody married, when you see a wedding, they're not talking about how they feel right now. Now, I know they feel, you know, their liver quivering and all that kind of stuff. That's amazing. You know, Skittles, Starbucks, all that stuff is amazing. Vows are not about how they feel right then. It's what they're promising to do in the future. So that's why, again, you've got kind of two parts to a wedding. If you've been to a wedding, you kind of have those two parts where the traditional ones, they, there's kind of a set of questions at the front and then these set of vows. And again, it, you know, do you take this woman to be your lawful wedded wife? And all you got to do when you're coaching them, all you got to do is say, I was like, just say I do. That's all you got to say. But then there's that second part, that second part they say to each other. Because the first part, they're kind of saying to the preacher, but really they're saying to the preacher, but they're really saying it to God, all right? That's that part. But so it goes from vertical and then it goes to horizontal and it's like, I, Bruce, take thee, Lori, to be my lawful wedding. And I'm saying that back. So I'm saying it back to God, but I'm then saying it to each other. Those are what's called vows. And what vows mean is this, is if everything goes great, I'm in. But if we're like every other couple in the entire world and entire entirety of human history, and they're still a little crazy in both her and him that you hadn't found out about yet. Now, why hadn't you found out about it yet? Because about 95% of dating is like 
thinking, no offense to my used car guys in here, but it's like, it's like a used car. It is. What's the used car salesman trying to do? Is he telling you all the stuff that's wrong with the used car? He's like, hey, you really don't want to buy this one because it's jacked up, all right? This tire's out of whack and this steering doesn't. No, he's not. He's like, oh, you'd be amazing in this. This is and telling you all the features. That's about 95% of the way we dated. We're trying to hide the flaws and hide the defects. And then once we get married, you're like, hey, I didn't understand that. That's why it's a vow. That's why it's a vow. So what has a, a consumer mindset? A consumer mindset is I contract. A consumer mindset is if you, then I. This is super important to understand. A consumer mind says, if you do this, then I will do this. If you do this, I will do this. The problem is, is when you say, I'm not getting what I want. I'm not getting what I want. And when we don't get what I want, a tug of war begins to take place. If I don't get what I want, then you're not going to get what you want. And it starts to pull on each other. And then eventually what you have in that is a winner and a loser. And you don't want a winner and a loser in marriage. You know why? Because even if you win, you lose. You do, because you win. But what happens when you wake up the next morning? <laughs> you look over and you see what? A loser, all right? You're like, hey, it's a and she's lost. she lost. And if she loses, guess what, bro? You lose. You lose. And so a consumer mindset says, if you and then I. That's why, by the way, a consumer mindset always pushes us toward entitlement. And God's always trying to push us toward gratitude. Consumer is entitlement. I deserve this. I need this. And we're always on that continuum. Entitlement is all about consumer. I deserve this. This is me. But a covenant pushes us toward gratitude. And look what God gave me. Look what God gave me. Because what a consumer says is, if you, then I. Covenant says, no matter what, I do. That's how you sacrifice. That's how you actually forgive somebody that isn't even asking for forgiveness. Um. Sometimes people will say in a, in a marriage, they'll go, uh, man, I don't know what is going on. They'll say it early sometimes too. I don't, I don't understand. I mean, when I was single, I never had to deal with this stuff. And then I got married and all this stuff just blew up and she's always angry at me. And the news that you got to understand, bro, is the reason that there was never any issue when you were single is because you were Single. <laughs> and all you had to deal with was you. And then when you take a broken sinner and you put another broken sinner in there, guess what? Those things are going to rub against each other. Keller says this is like a, like a Mack truck that goes over a bridge that has defects in it. So he says, he says, he says we're, like, we're like that broken bridge that the defects are there, but you can't see them. They're kind of below the surface. You can't really see them. And it looks good. It's an old bridge, but it looks good. But then you put a Mack truck over that bridge and the pressure of the Mack truck begins to expose the cracks that were in the bridge. And then he makes a great point. He said, your spouse is the Mack truck running through your heart. That's what it is. So all those things you didn't have to deal with, now you got to think about somebody else and all that selfishness and all that junk starts coming out. And the question is, if it's not grounded in covenant, it's going nowhere good. And so let me give you, let me push in on, I'm going to push in a little bit more on husbands and then I'm going to, and ladies don't get, I got, I got a little room for you as well. So um, guys, here's, here's the, and I say this from deep, uh, you know, shame and done this, I've gotten better, but especially early on. Here, here, here's the danger part of this. 
And it, I didn't really see how this worked together really like a cycle until really this week. Here's, here's the deal. Okay, um, our default is being passive. And yet what we looked at in week one is that the wife is asking the question, am I valued, am I loved? That's why the Bible repeatedly says husbands love your wives and never has to explicitly say wives love your husbands, if you know, ever know that. I mean, the expectation, expecting, yes, it's going to happen, but it doesn't have to spell it out. And so what happens is when we are passive and when we don't initiate it and they see all that initiation and all these other things we do and we don't initiate anything in pursuit of her, then the question is, I'm not valued, I'm not valued. And even worse, and even worse, and this is, again, I, I, I remember this illustration from probably 30 years ago. We'd been married two years. And the first two years, I don't think, we don't think we ever had an argument when we were dating. We probably dated, I don't know, we dated eight months, something like that. And then, um, then we were married two years, but she was in nursing school. I was in seminary. We studied. It was super busy, but it was just us, 400 square foot, triplex, 250 bucks a week. I mean, it was, it was like, yeah, it was, it, was, it was cold in the winter. That's what it was. But I'm just saying it was, it was we didn't get it. I don't, think, I don't remember an argument for two years. But then, but then right there, there was a point, there was like a two-week notice there at the end. Several things happened. Number one, uh, I graduated and she graduated the same exact day. So stressful, but good. All right, I graduated in the morning, she graduated in the evening. Um, that's two years into our marriage. She was like eight and a half months pregnant with Tyler, all right? So when she walked across the nursing room stage, I mean, she was great with child, all right? Um, as soon as she had Tyler, like two days later, the church that we've been called to was like, hey, it's been two days. I mean, they were, they were awesome. But then I moved her up into some little town up in North Texas with everybody else worked outside the home. And so she's stuck in a parsonage with a brand new newborn in a new town away from her family with a workaholic husband who's like gonna wanna change the world and I'm just gonna... And so after a while, there was some stress. It's like, I need you, son. I need you here. And I, I can't take care of this baby, all these kind of things. And you hear, I, I hate this is true, but here's, here was my initial reaction. It's my initial reaction as a three-year-old husband was, uh, especially with some of the stuff, when the, some of the stuff would come up, I would look at that and here, here's, this, here's this beautiful plant that God had given me to be a husbandman to, to nurture, to make sure it had what it needed to grow and thrive. And then when I started to see these brown leaves that I had never seen, I didn't see him dating I didn't see him when it was just her and I. And now I'm seeing all these brown leaves and I'm like, I don't like that. I don't what, who, that's not my fault. That's not my fault, man, that's, your dad did that. That's not, that's not on me, why am I paying for this? And instead of sitting there doing what the Bible tells us to do, it's like husbands, live with your wife in an understanding way and grant them honor, instead of going, all right, man, what do I need to do? I gotta get some, I gotta get some, I gotta get this thing in some sun. I gotta get her some help with some babysitting. I gotta pour some water on here so that these thrive. Instead of doing that, all I did is get angry. That's why actually the Bible says, husbands, do not be harsh with your wives. I think the reason it says do not be harsh with your wives is because our default mode after we get over our passivity is to get angry and be defensive. And guys, what I'm telling you is what she's just looking for is initiative, just initiative. 
I was talking to men yesterday in Knoxville, yesterday morning. I love talking to guys, especially guys that are at a church on a Saturday morning by their own choice because they, they want to. It's like, listen, what, what she's asking is, am I valuable in doing this, doing this? No, I don't like that part of you. I didn't see that when we were dating. I don't want that part. I didn't. That's, that's not it. That's not it. And um, hey, ladies, um, let me just say this too. I'm going to set you up for a win as well. If the tendency in our, in our fallenness, the tendency for the man is to be passive and neglect the relationship he has with his wife, that's the tendency. I'm not saying you have to. I'm saying because of fallen humanity and our sinfulness, that is the default mode unless you resist against it. And just like passivity is his default mode if he doesn't push against it, the lady's default mode, if you look in Genesis 3, the default mode, part of the curse, the tendency is to put him down. It's to put him down. Here are the 20 things you did. You're not doing it right, okay? You're not doing it right. Now, again, I've been doing this for a while, and I've told you before, I, I stink as a counselor. I really do. Don't ever ask to do marriage counseling with me because I'm telling you all I know right here. I mean, this is it. All right. I am a bad counselor. My counseling is basically stop it. Stop doing that. Next. That's it. It's like, stop. All right. Let's go. That'll be it. That's, that's counseling. It's not, I've gotten better. Now it's like, stop it. How can I pray for you? That's kind of what it goes. My wife said I've really improved on that. But bottom line is this. Down through the years, also, good Christian ladies will say, pastor, my husband won't be the spiritual leader. He won't be the spiritual leader. He won't read the Bible with us. He won't, he won't do Bible studies with me and da da da. He won't, he's not there. He won't be the spiritual leader. Listen to me carefully, super carefully. There is nowhere in the Bible that the phrase, men be the spiritual leader, that's not in the Bible. The phrase is not. Man be a spiritual leader, that's not in the Bible. Now, it actually has words that evangelicanism has come a lot more uncomfortable with. It has, the word it actually uses is the word head, which means the brother's got responsibility for all of this stuff. He's got responsibility. All that's now number one, number one right on that thing is the disciple's family, of course. Sacrificially love his wife, disciple his kids, make sure they're in that kind of awesome environment. That's awesome. But it doesn't say be the spiritual leader. It says, it says head. And so um, we soften it because we didn't like that. We soften it. We don't like leadership, but we don't like head. We don't like submission. We don't like any of those. So we just say, just be the spiritual leader. And actually what the Bible says in Ephesians 5 is a man's supposed to do three things. He's supposed to love sacrificially. He's supposed to provide and he's supposed to protect. He is supposed to love sacrificially, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for the church. And then he says later on, he says, love your wife as you love your own body. All right, if we get that part down, it's like pretty easy guy to follow if we would do that. So he says, love her sacrificially, provide, and then protect. So ladies, here's what I want to push in on with you. I, I'm thinking, because you're, you're frustrated because he's not going to do a Bible study with you yet. Now, I'm not saying he shouldn't. He should. He should. I'm just saying, find something that he's doing right. Brother's probably doing something right. Maybe he's teaching a little. Maybe he's teaching a little league game. He's coaching your son. That's part of what that is. He's, he go, He gets up and goes to work. I'm not saying that's incom, That's not complete. We talked about that week one and week two. I'm saying, ladies, he will. We said it. The first, he's, we're, we're not complicated. 
We're not. As I've said, we're like puppies, all right? We're like puppies. What you reward, we will repeat. I mean, so you're like, well, I, gotta, I, gotta, I don't know how to do that. Well, let me, give you, let me give you an example. So do this this week. Say, you're all about to leave in the morning, go separate directions, and look at him and go, honey, would you pray for me about, and then just tell him. Would you pray for me about this? Let's, whatever, meeting at 3 o'clock. Would you pray for me about that? I got a meeting at 3 o'clock I'm really nervous about. Just tell him that. Be, be specific. Will you pray for me about that 3 o'clock meeting? Now, he's going to probably grunt. And he's probably, yeah, okay, whatever. I mean, he might, whatever. But then, when he gets home, or when you see each other, and you don't have to lie, don't lie, all right? Just massage if you have to, all right? But when he gets home, when he gets home, just say, if you saw God move at all in that 3 o'clock meeting, go tell him, baby, God moved in that 3 o'clock meeting. Thank you for praying for me. That was amazing. And God moved in my boss's life. God moved in that school meeting, whatever it is. Thank you for praying for me. And then give him a big kiss. Seriously, just kiss him. Trust me. Wait till next week, but just trust me on that one, okay? He, he will repeat. And guys, let me do this. I know we have a generation that had nobody that showed you how. I didn't have a clue, still don't in a lot of ways. How do you actually do that kind of stuff? So let me give you an easy one. Ask your wife, how can I pray for you today? Ask her. Ask her, hey, how can I pray for you today? How can I pray for you today? Here's what she will say. She will say words. She'll say words. You're going to ask her, how can I pray for you? She'll tell you something. So all you got to do is listen to me. This is, this is it. This is, you paid a lot of money to hear this, all right? So here's the idea. She'll tell you words, and you, you say, Dear God, and then say words, the words that she just said. Just you can repeat them back. Dear God, words, in Jesus' name, amen. You're like, is that all? That's it. Just start there. Dear God, I'm going to pray for my wife's meeting at 3 o'clock. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, is that all? No, but it's a start. It's a start. Like I, and, then it, and then it'll go from there. So here's what I would say. Um. The main thing you got to figure out is, all right, how am, I, how am I supposed to, yes, am I supposed to disciple my family? Yes, I am. I would say the way that that starts is be the lead, be the lead confessor, be the lead repenter. If you put some expectations that, there's nothing wrong with having the expectations, but here's the deal. When you hold it over your spouse like that, the best they can do is break even. And you're like, I expect these 10 things to happen. The best they can do is break even. I mean, it's like, and, and so what happens is they don't, if they don't break even, they just, they just, they, they messed up. So maybe you just need to say, you know, I'm sorry I put this performance review on you. I'm sorry that I, I did that and be the lead confessor and lead, uh, and be the lead repenter. But the bottom line is we just, we got to have some realignment. We got to, I don't even want to bore you with all the statistics maritally, especially over the last 22 months. I mean, we would have thought, man, 22 months and you had six months of lockdown and all this kind of stuff is going to be awesome. It's not awesome. It's not awesome at all. So there has to be a realignment. So here's the realignment. Now, you know, realignment, you know how if your tires, if your car is, pull, you know, it's always just pulling or it's bumping, it's bumping like that. If you don't believe me, just drive on 26 for like, you know, whatever, a day. 
All right, nothing's not gonna be done until Jesus comes again. Just saying, but you, all you gotta do when you're when you're driving, when you're driving, bum, 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 okay. When that is a consumer mentality, what's in the middle is I. You're in the I gotta have this. If I I gotta have this. I'm just saying you gotta replace that instead of I in the middle, put the cross in the middle and say, you know what? As God has been gracious to me, I will be gracious to my spouse. All right. I'm 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 a sinner first, sinned against second. I've been shown great forgiveness. I'm going to give great forgiveness. In other words, the only way, the way you get the gospel centered marriage is putting the gospel in the center. 